Amen. Amen. Thank you, Laura and Kaylee, for that special as we consider the Lord who will take care of us, and he is the one in control. And may all our days, as a result of that, bring glory to his name. Thank you for that beautiful song. I forgot to mention that those, and you probably saw in the video, uh, but the voices were the daughters of Pastor Paul and Miss Karen. So that was um, a beautiful memory and a beautiful sight to see and hear as well uh, as we were able just to reflect on uh, the ministries throughout the years to those children. That was Leah, Christy, and Emily, and uh, we're so thankful that they were able to do that and to be a part of that. And, you know, there have been many hands even behind those videos that uh, would not even want to be acknowledged, but I know Denya and Greg both were involved in the making of those videos uh, throughout the past few weeks and have spent many hours doing that. And I've spent many hours trying to interrupt them as well. And so uh, they uh, got it done, though, and uh, we're thankful for them and thankful uh, for Pastor Paul and Miss Karen and their ministry. And I'd encourage you, if you haven't done so, uh, please let them know personally, whether that's in person through a card or through a text or email, let them know how thankful you are uh, for them. Hebrews 13 gives a challenge to the congregation uh, to make the ministry a joy to the shepherd. Make it a joy. Make it easy for them. Let them know how thankful you are for them. Many times uh, ministry is difficult on the pastor, and I just want to encourage you as a congregation and as a pastor to live out Hebrews chapter 13. Make it a joy. Make it a joy for them to consider. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of James, James chapter 2 this morning. We're going to finish our series, or we're going to finish our section in James chapter 2 and go on to chapter 3 here uh, in the coming weeks. And James ends his section on faith and action, active faith, living faith, real faith. He ends it by giving illustrations of what it looks like to live out real faith. When you hear the word example, what do you think of? Maybe imitation, maybe you think of living out what should be done, maybe you uh, think about the idea of an example to follow. This week I received a new phone and I was supposed to put a screen protector on the phone. I don't know if any of you use screen protectors. I do because I drop my phone quite a bit. And, uh, you know, it should be pretty easy to put those things on, but sometimes it can be difficult. And on the screen protector, right before you put it on, it said, follow this video to make sure that you put it on properly. So I did like any other person would do and ignored it. And because of that, what should have taken 30 seconds took 30 minutes. Why? Because I didn't follow the example that was in front of me. Now, if you were to use the word example in a sentence, I googled the word example in a sentence. If you were to do that today, now don't do it now, but if you were to do that today, what you would see, one of the first things you would see is parents should be a good example to their children. How many of you grandparents or parents want to be good examples to your children? Okay, good. Most of us today, some of you don't, apparently. <laughs> if you're a parent or grandparent today, you want to be a good example 
to your children. Now, here's the deal. Sometimes kids are watching you, and I've learned this. They're watching you, and they pick up the wrong traits, or they pick up the things that you don't want them to pick up, or just by chance, they don't do the things you want them to do. So I'm going to give you an illustration. I, I, I Googled that because I really just wanted to tell a story about Karis. So I'm going to tell a story about my daughter, and I'm going to show you a picture here in a second. Karis has now figured out how to follow the example of Mama and Dada. She wants to do what we do. So one thing Hannah does really well, which she does many things well, but one thing she does really well is keep a, a clean house. Now, if I was in charge of that, we'd be living in a pigsty, as my mom used to say about my room. Hannah, though, is pristine. Karis wants to follow suit. Well, here's the problem. When Karis wants to follow suit, she'll just grab whatever bottle is in place. I mean, it's the bleach. She'll grab the bleach, and she'll spray it on the wall, and it will be clean. I promise you that. Or she'll grab the toilet bowl cleaner, and she'll spray it on the carpet, and she'll consider her job done, okay? She'll grab whatever bottle she can find to help clean with Mama. So Hannah got the bright idea to give her her own little bottle and rag. And so I thought I'd just show you a picture because it's so cute. So, I mean, look at that. In fact, I had three pictures. We're going to show you three pictures here because they're all cute, okay? And Greg and I were texting this morning, like, which picture should we show? And we were like, they're all cute. We're just going to show all three. So there's a fake bottle of something. I guess it's just water. And Karis will pick up that bottle when Hannah is cleaning in that rag, and she says, I clean, I clean, over and over again. And she'll just spray it on everything, and she'll accomplish her task. Well, she started following the example of things that I do. And so one thing I do that I uh, am a little probably obsessive about is, and this is kind of odd probably, but I just got to be honest about it. We have a gravel driveway, and one thing I hate are weeds in my gravel driveway. Some people don't care about it. I care about it. I do not like weeds growing in my driveway, and so I'm picking them. I'm spraying them as much as possible, probably one, once or twice a week to make sure there's no weeds in my driveway. Well, what I do is after I'm going to the mailbox, I'll pick them and throw them in the grass. Well, one time Kara saw me do that, but she didn't see me pick the weed. So what she did is she reached down, picked the rock up, and threw it into the yard. She'll throw it at the car. It doesn't matter. She's just going to follow what I do. And so we've finally taken about three months, and we've taught her, and now she picks the grass out of the yard and everything else to make sure that the weeds are taken care of. Here's the deal. All of us like examples to follow. It's not just with children, but it's with everything in this life. We all want something to imitate, someone to look up to, something to follow so that we do the right thing. And James is going to do the same thing here. He's going to give us some examples on what to do when it comes to living out our faith. And he does this not only to show us how to do it, but he also does it to prove his point. To say that real faith, and here's the point he's trying to get across and what I've been trying to say the past few weeks, real faith reveals real fruit. Real faith reveals real fruit. That is, authentic faith, faith that is genuine, will work. It will work. And James says if it doesn't work, if you don't prove your faith, what does he say? Your faith is dead. He talks about that at the beginning of verse 14. It's dead faith. Then he goes on to say not only is there dead faith in life, but there's also demonic faith. What is it about the demons that we all know? No demon is an atheist. All 
demons believe there is a God, but yet they don't really trust the truth. And it's the same thing with many people today. They may say they know the truth, but do they really believe it? That's a demonic faith. There's dead faith, there's demonic faith, and now we're going to see a dynamic faith. Real faith in action. An example of real faith. Now, what are these two examples? They're going to surprise you because they are polar opposites. You would think that out of all the examples that James could give, he would pull uh, two that would be similar, but he takes the complete opposites. He takes Abraham, the patriarch, and he takes Rahab, the prostitute. He takes the man that's respected, and he takes the woman that has a terrible reputation. He takes the man that has power, prestige, honor, and then he brings in the woman who would be rejected by most of the people in this room, and he says, look at these two. They're great examples of real faith that's lived out, that reveals real fruit. And friend, today, these two examples, if you're taking notes today, will challenge us to live the same way. They're going to challenge us whether we do it or not. They're going to encourage us to live out our faith. So that being said, let's look at the first example this morning. I want you to see here in James chapter 2, if you have your place there, verse 21, we're going to see the first example, and that is Abraham. Abraham, the patriarch, the father of the Israelites, the one that God chose to begin his people. Here's what verse 21 says. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar, seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Verse 24, ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. That's confusing <laughs> at first glance, isn't it? We've heard in Romans or Ephesians that what? We're justified not by works, we're justified by faith alone. And yet James here is saying that what? We're justified by works as well. You probably hear this and your ears might perk up in a sense, and you're saying, have I been lied to? What is going on here? Why in the world would Paul say one thing and James would say another thing? Why in the world would we hear someone say you're justified by faith, but yet you're also justified by works? What exactly is going on here? I want to take a few minutes because of that to make sure we're all on the same page. So here's what I want you to do. If you have a pen with you this morning or maybe a pencil there in the back of the pew, I want you to take it out because I'm going to give you a few references to write in the margins of your Bible. If you're at verse 21, I want you to write Genesis 22 next to verse 21. Genesis 22. If you remember, Genesis 22 is the chapter where we're given the full account of Abraham as he's preparing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice of obedience to the Lord, to follow God's command. Now, look again at verse 23. Go down two verses to verse 23 of James chapter 2, and I want you to write Genesis 15 in the margin. So Genesis 22 at verse 21, and then Genesis 15 at verse 23. 
3. If you read the Apostle Paul in Romans 4, he will actually quote Genesis 15, verse 6, and he will declare that Abraham is justified by faith apart from works. But then we see here in James, he quotes verse 23 and goes back to Genesis 15 and says, Abraham is justified by works, so who is right? And you're saying, Pastor Nick, you've painted yourself in a corner. And any time I paint myself in the corner, I call Pastor Harley to get me out. <laughs> Here's the answer. Here, here, here is what I'm trying to get across to you today without confusing you. They're both right. They're both right. Now, here's the deal. There's two sides of the coin when it comes to justification. When it comes to being declared righteous before God and before man, there are two different perspectives. And Paul is looking at one perspective when he comes to Romans most of the time. And James is looking at the other perspective. In fact, there's two meanings to the word justification in the Greek. I want to point this out to you because I don't want you to miss it. There's two meanings when you come to the word justification in the Bible. And Paul will use it one way and James will use it another way. So here it is. The first one, the first meaning of justification or justified, dikaio in the Greek, is a legal declaration of being righteous. A legal declaration of being righteous. This is the word that Paul uses, the meaning that Paul uses in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, having been justified or having been declared legally righteous by faith, we have peace with God. Right? And praise the Lord, we do. I mean, praise the Lord, we're justified that way. We're legally declared righteous, not because of anything we've done, friend, but simply because by faith in the cross of Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous. This is a legal pronouncement. When we're standing in the courtroom of holiness, of, of justice, of the creator of the universe, and he puts his gavel down, and he says, you are righteous. It's credited to your account. The righteousness of Christ is given to you. <laughs> Not because of what you've done, friend, but simply because of what Jesus Christ did for you, and praise the Lord. Because I don't know about you. I don't deserve one ounce of that. Not one ounce am I given the opportunity to deserve that righteousness. It's the same thing for you today. We're just great sinners who know a great Savior. We're just great sinners who know a great Savior. So the first side of justification is in the courtroom of God's opinion. It's God looking at us. It's a declared righteousness that we're given. The second meaning, the one that James uses, is a vindication before man. You're vindicated before mankind, before the world. See, here's the deal. Before God, when God looks at you, you're justified in the opinion of God, by the righteousness of Christ. And Paul will use this 
declaration of being righteous to prove the fact that Abraham was justified before anything he did. Think about it for a second. When Abraham is justified, when Paul uses that to prove that Abraham is justified, he's doing it in a way to say you're justified before anything you have done. Now James will use the word, he'll switch it, he'll use another meaning, and he'll say that you are justified before the world by the things you do. By the works that you accomplish, you prove you prove you're justified, not to God, but to man, because of the way you have worked. Both of them will use Genesis 15, but in different ways. Again, Paul uses the verse to prove the fact that Abraham was justified before he did anything. I like the way Warren Wearsby, he always makes things so clear. I like the way Warren Wearsby put it. They're going to put the quote on the screen for you. I think I have it in your notes there. Warren Wearsby put it this way. Paul is emphasizing the root of salvation, and James is emphasizing the fruit of salvation. Paul wants to show the root. You've been justified before God because of what Christ did for you. James says you're justified before men by the works you do. You show you're saved. You show you're a Christian. You show that you believe. In fact, look at verse 22 with me of James chapter 2 again. Here's what James says. Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was made what? Perfect, or perfected, or mature. That's James' way of saying that at this point in Abraham's life, he is matured in his Faith is speaking of maturity. It's speaking of perfection, not in the sense of sinlessness, but in the sense of being a mature, grown-up Christian. And he says, look to him. You see, this, this man before you, Abraham, it, it took him 50 years to reach this point. It took 50 years of struggle. It took 50 years of learning to have faith in God. And now in the court of the opinion of man, now to a watching world, he's showing us how to live out your faith. He's showing us what it looks like to trust God on the mountain and in the valley. His faith is being vindicated to men. It's being vindicated to a watching world. In fact, I'd love to just take you there for a second. I want you to see this. Go to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, if you have your Bibles. I don't want you to miss this. I, I, I love this passage of Scripture. Probably the greatest act of faith, the, the greatest picture of, of real faith that reveals real fruit by any human being on the planet. If you remember Genesis 15, God promises an heir to Abraham. Comes years later, Abraham again becomes discouraged over this and tries to reroute the plan of God, and, and, and God still in the midst of that uses it. But then finally, God blesses Sarah. She gets pregnant, has a son named Isaac. Uh, about the time that Abraham blows out his 
hundredth candle for his hundredth birthday. Sarah is not far behind at 90 years old. And you get to Genesis chapter 22. And uh, I love this now. I want to just read this passage to you because I think it's so important. He has the promise fulfilled. And he's thinking now everything's okay. I'm not going to be tested anymore. I've waited all these years. God's fulfilled his promises. There's no more things to be struggling with. And yet, what does God do? Look at verse 2 of Genesis chapter 22. He said this, And he said, this is God, Take now thy son, thy only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Abraham, did you hear that? I mean, it's not that Abraham didn't listen. He's probably just a little, a little hurt by this, maybe. Why do you think God had to say, take your son? Well, God, I have two sons, don't I? Ishmael and Isaac. No, 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 take your only son. Well, God, can I take this other son? No, which son? Take Isaac. The, the one you love, and I want you to take him up to the mountain, and, and I want you to tie him up, and I want you to give him as a sacrifice of obedience to me. I mean, could you just imagine, if you go to verse 8 there uh, of chapter 22, verse 7 and 8, could you just imagine for a second, the Bible doesn't reveal all of this, but just think about the conversation between Isaac and, and Abraham as they're walking up this mountain. Dad, you're supposed to have a, a, a ram to sacrifice. God will provide, son. Well, well Dad, I, I, I don't see the ram, and, and usually there's a ram here when you've done this in the past. God will provide, son. Dad, I don't know about you, but these rams, they don't just appear out of nowhere. God will provide, son. And you get up there, you get to... The next few verses and verse 10 tells us that Abraham ties him up and he raises the knife to take the life of his son. And what does God do? He says, stop, Abraham. I know now that you fear me. I know now that your faith is real. You've proved it. And I want you to look over there and what do you see in the thicket? You see a ram, don't you? You see a ram over there. And by the way, that had to be the quietest ram in the world. <laughs> to think that God would provide a ram. And what a beautiful picture, by the way, of the Lamb of God who centuries later went to a cross on the same hills to die for you and me. When we didn't deserve it. And we don't deserve it now. And yet God, in his mercy, gives us a beautiful picture in Genesis chapter 22 of what Jesus Christ did for us. And I know this isn't the point of the sermon, but I don't want to miss an opportunity to tell you this, that Jesus Christ went to a cross for you. He died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again. And friend, if you've stepped into this room just for a moment, if you've stepped into this room and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior... I want to encourage you, today is the day of salvation. 
Today is the day that God wants you to be saved. Today is the day that he's given you the chance to do that. Don't leave this place without knowing for sure that you know Jesus because he did that for you. He did that for you. So that you can, as James does in James chapter 2, you can follow in the footsteps of Abraham. You see, you can't, you can't really show real faith that reveals real fruit until you have faith in the first place until you've accepted the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Bible says when you do that, though, and let me bring it back to where we are today, when you do that, though, you're to follow in the steps of Abraham. You're to do as Abraham did. You're to show that you are a Christian through the way that you live. Now, James didn't just use Abraham as an example to say, I know my history. You know, he, he didn't just give us an example of Abraham to, to show that he knows the Old Testament. No, he's giving us this example of Abraham to say, you do the same thing. You reveal your faith. You vindicate your faith. You show your faith to a lost and dying world by the things you do, by the way you live, by the way you act, by what you say, by how you live. Then you get to verse 24. Verse 24 of James chapter 2. Go back there for a second. I want you to see this because this can be a confusing verse if we're not clear. You go back to verse 24 and, and, and James is giving this illustration and he says, Ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Here's what James is telling us. And this is the Nick Decker translation. He's saying that you're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. In that faith always comes with works. And if faith doesn't come with works, your faith is dead. Your faith is useless. It's pointless. And he's saying that's exactly what Abraham did here. Paul says he's justified by faith alone. But James says he proved his faith by his works. Friends, the same thing with you. Let me just ask this simple question, just in simple terms today. Does the world look at you and know that you're saved by how you live? Does the world look at you, the unbeliever who sits next to you in the office, the unbeliever who lives next door to you, the unbeliever at the soccer games, the unbeliever who you see at the restaurants, the waitress, the waiter, who has no idea who you are, do they look at you and know by the way you live that you live for Christ? What is it about you that an unbeliever could say that you are a Christian? His faith is genuine. Her faith is real. What is it about you that an unbeliever can say you're saved? Or sadly... Do they stumble over you to get to the cross? You know, if there's one thing that scares me, it's that I never want to be a reason somebody can't get to the cross. The, the only reason I want somebody to stumble is because of the cross. That's the only reason I want them to stumble, not because of the way I lived. I want them to stumble only, as 1 Corinthians says, over the cross. Can the same thing be said about you? Does the life you live prove that you are 
a Christian. You see, does your neighbor, I thought about this as I was pulling out of my driveway this week to go to church, and even this morning, my neighbors will see me pull out of the driveway, but on Monday, do they see me pull the Bible out? What about you? Do your neighbors see you pull out of your driveway on Sunday to come to church? They see you dressed up, but do they actually see you live out the Bible on Monday? See, if we're not careful, we can do the opposite of what James is telling us. We can live in such a way that we never prove that we know Jesus Christ. I I put it this way. I asked this question this way. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Do lost people know you're not lost? Do lost people know, by the way you live, that you're not lost? Listen, I, I want every person I come in contact with, we all do. I, I think we'd all admit, we want every single person to come to know Jesus Christ. We want every person to accept Jesus Christ. We want to be a vessel that God can use to bring people to Jesus Christ. But I've often thought that not every person, and we know this, not every person will come to know Jesus Christ, but I never want them to think, by the way I live, that I don't know Jesus. Man, if there's one thing that that I could say about somebody who never accepts Jesus, I never want them to look at me and never think that he's not genuine. It's the same thing for you. Do lost people know you're not lost? Teenagers at school, the people you interact with in the cafeteria, the co-workers next door to you, friend, the soccer parents you see each week, the family members you're about to run into this holiday season. Does the unbeliever know you're the real deal? Think about your funeral for a second. And I got to hurry here. <laughs> I keep... I keep saying I'm only going to preach so long, and then I keep going. (laughs) Think about your funeral for a second. It's kind of gloomy to actually think about your funeral, but I think it's good for Christians because there is hope, as the Bible says. But to think about your funeral, what is it you want your kids, your grandkids, your pastor, what do you you want the people that are going to be at your funeral, what do you want them to say about you? I mean, as you're thinking about that, I, I, I think about the accomplishments and I think about the work ethic, but at the end of the day, when I think about what I want people to remember me for is I want them to say he's real, he's genuine, he cared about the lost, he wanted people to know that he was a Christian. I was at a funeral not too long ago for Buddy Gordon's brother, Benny. Some of you know Benny. Those first few weeks I was here, I went to that funeral and about four or five people stood up, and I promise you, every single person that spoke something about Benny said that he was the real deal. They said he took every opportunity he could to tell somebody about Jesus. And now I'm listening to Buddy, who's his brother, who's still living. He's 80, almost 82 years old. Buddy's telling me that I want to be just like Benny. And last week, we went out to lunch to Uh, short sugars, and he's telling me about how he's witnessing to his neighbor. And I said, what a testimony. I mean, that's what I I want to be remembered for somebody who was the real deal, somebody who, who not only had faith, but revealed his faith. Sitting there at my funeral, I think about our, our pastor. We've reflected on Pastor Paul the past few weeks here, and I was thinking 
just over some of the moments I've had with him. And I didn't tell him I was going to do this, but uh, I was talking to Matt Smith, Pastor Matt Smith, who preached here and was on staff here for eight years. He said, some of the greatest memories you'll have with Pastor Paul is on visitation. And uh, he said, some of the greatest memories I've had is when we go visiting different people. So I remember the first few weeks we were visiting uh, people in the hospital and in hospice. And I don't know how we got on this conversation, but I asked Pastor Paul, I said, just tell me uh, a few people that, um, uh, that you led to the Lord. Maybe the first few people that you've led to the Lord. So he began to tell me uh, the, the first few people that he led to the Lord. And he got to this one guy. That was at, a, at a, a bus stop, I believe, and it was pouring down rain. You remember this? It was pouring down rain. And the Holy Spirit came over him, came over Pastor Paul and said, I want you to witness to this guy, and he's fighting it. And he's saying, it's raining. Karen needs to pick me up. I don't have a car. Maybe I'll do it later. And he said, I could not get over it. And I finally went and witnessed to the guy, and the guy got saved. And it got silent in the old white truck that he was driving <laughs> and I thought, you know, maybe he, you know, is thinking about another story, and I look over, and there's tears in his eyes. And I start crying. And I start to think, what a picture. What, what a testimony of real faith. And I'm thinking there's a 31-year-old pastor. 40 years from now, 30 years from now, I want the same thing. I want to be able to say to the young guy, hey, look, you can have all these accolades, but really at the end of the day, I want your faith to be real. I want your faith to be known. I want your faith to be shown. I want your faith to be evident to those who don't know it. I'm telling you, it's a beautiful picture of what it means to live out your faith. Friend, where are you? Where are you today? Is your faith real is it evident to those who don't know Christ? Can the same thing be said of you? Do, do the unbelievers say you're the real deal? Now quickly, let me move on to Rahab. I have three minutes here. Three minutes and I'll finish. Three minutes. Rahab is the second example. You look at Abraham and Abraham lived out his faith. He was justified before men because of the way he lived. Now he goes to Rahab, the prostitute, verse 25. Likewise, James says, also was not Rahab, the harlot, justified by works when she had received the messengers, the spies, and had sent them out another way. You think Rahab's an, uh, an odd picture, an odd example, but if you consider Rahab, she is making her money literally sleeping around. And James says she's justified by the way she lives. She's given up, if you read Joshua, she gives up her beliefs in those gods that are false, and she goes to the one true God. She takes in these spies. She hides them. She then helps them get out, tells them the way to go, and in all of this puts her life in danger. And yet she does it because she believes in God. And as a result of believing in God, she lives it out. She puts her faith in action. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're saying, well, Pastor Nick, I can't be Abraham. Pastor Nick, I don't know about you, but I, I don't run into a spy every week that I need to hide like Rahab. <laughs> you're right. 
You're right. We don't have the same moments, the same opportunities like Abraham and like Rahab uh, have in, in James chapter 2. But you and I, you know what we do? We do have opportunities every single day to live out our faith. You think about it. Some of you need today to walk across the street to your neighbor and introduce yourself. Some of you have unsaved friends. Some of you have unsaved coworkers that you've never talked to, that you've never told about your faith, and you have every single opportunity, just like Abraham, just like Rahab, to live out your faith in front of them. Some of you need to step foot onto the soccer field, to the parents across the field, and introduce yourself to tell them about Jesus. Some of you need to show up to the fall festival this weekend. You were thinking, I'm not going to do that. Uh, they got it. Some of you need to show up to the fall festival this weekend. You know what you need to do? You need to introduce yourself to somebody you don't know and invite them to church. You know what I've been doing lately? I've been convicted over James chapter 2. And uh, I've, I, I, I've often thought that, you know what, I need to live this out myself. So you know what I've been doing? I've been taking those invite cards. Just this week, I invited two, two people from Uptown Charlie's to our church. I said, I'm, I'm the pastor, one of the pastors there. I just want you to come. I'm handing out these cards. I've been convicted. There's a lady at the Ruby Tuesdays in Eden, and I'm not perfect at this, but Greg and I were sitting there one day, and I just began to ask her. I just, the Holy Spirit came over me, and I didn't want to lose that opportunity. Her name's Lisa Green, and I said, Lisa, do you know Jesus Christ? She said, well, I think I'm going to heaven because of the good works. I said, well, what about Ephesians chapter 2? It says, it's not by works that you're saved. And she said, well, I want to hear more of that. She sat beside us. I got to share the gospel with her. We invited her to church and all of those things. She said, will you just pray I get Sundays off and my family will get back in church. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm praying for Lisa Green. I want her to know Jesus Christ. I want to take every opportunity I can, not just to say I have faith, but to live it out. Friends, the same thing for you today. Will you live out your faith before a lost and dying world? world. Will your faith be justified, not saved, not salvation, but will it be justified, not before God, but before man? Will you vindicate your faith to a lost and dying world? I pray that will be true of us today. Will you pray with me? As the musicians come this morning, I just want to take just a few moments to encourage you today. There's one of two people in this room. Either you've stepped into this room today and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. You've never accepted the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that because you'll never be able to live out your faith unless you know Jesus. Listen, if you're here today with every head bowed, every eye closed, and you say, Pastor Nick, I've never accepted the message of Jesus Christ. I've never come to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. Nobody looking around. I, I just want you to slip up your hand today. Is there anybody in the room this morning that's never accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior? Anybody in the room, just slip your hand up. We won't call you out. We just want to pray for you. Listen, if you're here today and you've never done that, you have the opportunity. The altar is open for you. We have people up here that can pray with you to lead you in a simple prayer so that you can know Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you say, Pastor Nick, I'm not living my faith out. I'm saved, but I'm not living it out. There's time for you at the altar to make that right. Father, I pray as the Spirit moves in the room today that you will convict hearts. We know that we are believers who should live out what we believe. Pray, Father, that you... We use this time. Pray in your son's name we ask this. 
Amen. Amen. Will you stand with us as we...